Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hamlet. What does a mutation in the Hamlet gene do? Oh, um, depression, uh, talking to a skull, uh, really hating your uncle, uh, being a small ham. Um. Okay, I'm going to cut you off. (laughs) That was very impressive. From Science Friday, this is Science Diction. I'm Johanna Mayer, and today we're talking about gene names, fruit fly gene names, and also defenestration. Back in grad school, I spent a lot of time with fruit flies. I was studying evolutionary biology, doing experiments that honestly rarely worked out. I was not good at this very basic thing that you don't even have to be a scientist to do, which is keeping fruit flies alive. Science fiction senior producer, Ella Fetter. That is me. So I had some long days in the lab just sorting unconscious fruit flies under a microscope. And I, you know, I was often bored. And to pass the time, I listened to a lot of... Gwen Stefani. So Hollaback Girl was a big album at the time, but not everyone in the building was a fan of these beats that were coming down the hall. And one day this professor from the lab next door suggested that I might listen to like anything else. And he asked me if I'd heard of podcasts, which I had, but I wasn't totally sure what they were. And I was kind of stubbornly refusing to even find out. Sounded like some trendy new gadget. But I gave it a shot, which led me here, and in a roundabout way, I have fruit flies to thank for it. So today is a celebration of fruit flies, and we have company. I am Helen Zaltzman, and I make podcasts including The Illusionist, an entertainment show about language. And the occasion for all of us getting together? Fruit flies. Or to be specific, their genes. Helen, Helen, so... You probably have heard about how some people with COVID have been losing their sense of smell. Mm. Yes, very common. Last March, we came across this tweet from a professor, and he said that that loss of smell might be caused by this one particular gene getting silenced. Huh. And the gene was called Sonic Hedgehog. Like that was its real, <laughs> that was its real scientific name. Which, of course, led to a lot of jokes, rightfully so, and also led to a lot of people being like, wait, you're allowed to name a gene after a Sega character? And yes, actually, we do have a lot of genes with really weird names. So there used to be a gene called Headcase, and for a while there was also a gene called Pokemon that was actually linked to cancer until Pokemon USA actually threatened legal (laughs) action. (laughs) They didn't want their their name on such a non-playful gene. Yes, yes. When people give those names to things, is that canonical? Or is it just what you use in your lab being funny and then in a in scientific paper you give it like a string of letters and numbers? No, that name will fully count. So you can discover a gene, give it just about any silly name that you want in your paper. And generally, that's the official name. Although there is actually, for human genes, uh, a committee that's like 
like the high court of human genomes, and they decide what names are actually okay and which ones are not. Because there are some that are not. Yeah, there are some that have caused some real problems, which we will be talking about. But a lot of those names, they're not the fault of human geneticists. Hmm. It's actually fruit fly geneticists who are the uh, uh, who are often the troublemakers and also mouse people. Yeah, the mouse people got in there and stirred up some <laughs> stuff. Can't trust mouse people. But fruit fly people in particular have a reputation for getting very creative with their gene names. Like, there's this article from 1992 in the LA Times all about this. This, like, curious divergence between two camps of scientists. So, fruit fly people and C. elegans people. A.K.A. worm people. Worm people are dead serious with their gene names. So, when the fruit fly people are, like, partying it up with names like drop dead and male chauvinist pigmentation, for the worm people... Almost always, it's three letters followed by a number. And then the fruit fly people are like, ugh, the worm people are total squares. There's one guy who's actually quoted in the article. His name's Tom Kaufman, and he just straight up calls the worm people sticks in the mud. Oh, yeah. Well, my one of my favorite quotes is from a good friend of mine, Jeff Hall. You couldn't dynamite an interesting name out of a worm geneticist. Yeah, 29 years after this article came out, Tom Kaufman still stands by it. Today, he's a distinguished professor at Indiana University, Bloomington. I prefer to think of myself as a, an extinguished professor, and I, I do flies. I, I love my flies. What can I say? He loves his flies. I'm really happy for him. So most people trace this tradition of weird gene names back to one guy. Thomas Hunt Morgans, the guy who started the whole thing back in 1910 when he discovered the white mutation. Mm. He's basically like the original fruit fly geneticist, although he started off as a developmental biologist. And he kind of got dragged into this genetics business by happenstance. And it was recommended to him that he work on these fruit flies by one of his colleagues. And so he brought the flies into the lab because you could go out to the fruit markets and capture lots of them. And they just started breeding them. So Thomas Morgan, he didn't just study fruit flies. He ate them. Mm. He told his coworkers that they tasted like grape nuts, which is a cereal that I have never had. It's, a, it's an austere cereal. It's like cat litter, but a bit scaled down. Yeah. <laughs> well, so that's what fruit flies taste like, apparently. So Tom, Tom had a different take. They taste pretty much like what they've been grown on, which is acetic and phosphoric acid. So mainly what the taste is, is that. Like vinegar? Yeah, like vinegar. You sound like you know the taste of fruit flies from personal yeah. experience. Yeah. You, you've eaten fruit flies. Yeah. Why? Why not? <laughs> they don't look appetizing. Did you season them? Like, how did you prepare the fruit flies? And Well, you just... Pop a couple in your mouth and... Okay, so it's a finger food. Crunch them around a little and see what they taste like. Wow. I love how Tom <laughs> Kaufman was like, of course I ate them. It's the most natural thing in the world. Why wouldn't I eat them? <laughs> so Thomas Morgan, the original fruit fly person, was breeding all these flies in his lab and snacking on them. And 
One day he noticed that there was this one fly with fully white eyes. One male fly with white eyes out of possibly thousands of flies. Fruit flies are usually red, but this fly had white ones. Which, you know, that kind of thing happens when you're breeding flies in a lab and they're all just getting really inbred. You start to see these mutations. This male fly with white eyes turns out to be a very big deal because Morgan soon starts breeding these white-eyed flies and he notices that the female flies are less likely to have the white eyes. It's usually just males, which leads him to show that genes can be sex-linked and also that genes are in chromosomes in a long string, which was really just a theory at that point. He actually ended up winning the Nobel Prize for his work. But for our story, the key part is what he decided to name this gene. And this decision would set off a century of playful and sometimes very iffy gene naming. He named it White. Is that it? That was it. Yeah, that was it. The gene was was named White. Nope, nope, that was it. But this was a turning point. It was a descriptive name in plain English, so he helped establish that tradition. And it was kind of an unusual choice. It's a backwards logic because what we're expressing in the gene name white is what goes wrong when the normal function is absent. Stephanie Moore is a lecturer on genetics at Harvard Medical School and the author of First in Fly. So if you have a normal copy of the white gene, you have a brick red eye. (laughs) You know, it's a little bit like if you were naming parts of your car and you called the steering wheel, won't turn. So that also became a standard that Thomas Morgan helped establish that you name a gene after what the mutant looks like. So still, naming things like white was pretty safe. And after that, people kept in the tradition of really safe, descriptive names. If we look at the genes that were named in the 19-teens, 1920s, and so on, they look descriptive, right? They're descriptive of eye colors. They're descriptions of what's going wrong in a wing. A forked is a forked bristle instead of a single bristle, right? So they're, they're, they're very straightforward. I, I would not be able to pinpoint who or when the field started becoming creative about it. But we do have examples where people start to get really creative with the best of intentions, and it winds up creating some awkward situations, like this gene. In the late 70s, a pair of scientists were looking at mutations that affected development. So fruit fly larvae have bristles on them, and they found this one mutation that caused the bristles to be all bunched together. And they thought, what does this bristly little creature look like? Let's call it hedgehog. Perfectly descriptive of the mutant phenotype. Everything is fine, okay. But then they found that there were mutants in mice, and mice have four copies of this gene. And the mouse people got cute. So they started naming these extra copies. So they said, oh, there's one that's hedgehog. Then there's one we'll call Sonic Hedgehog, after the the cartoon character. And there's another one called Desert Hedgehog and Indian Hedgehog, to name all four of these things. There's also Tiggy Winkle Hedgehog and Echidna Hedgehog, okay? And people were just trying to be cute. But humans have these genes, too. Well, then it was discovered that this gene caused a human disease that is a very bad thing for a child to inherit from its parents. 
holoprosencephaly. And when a child has this and a doctor comes and says, oh, your child is mutant for the sonic hedgehog gene. Well, you know, it's not a joke to have a child with holoprosencephaly. Another another place where this is, is a problem is there's another mutation called fringe. It was discovered in, in flies. And fringe, again, has a mutant phenotype that's, you know, consistent with, it's like hedgehog. But then they discovered these extra copies of these genes and they started getting cute. And so they called them lunatic fringe and so on. And it, it, it starts to get a little over the top. And again, these things have human orthologs, which can be associated with bad genetic disorders in human beings. And so that's where things start getting a little dicey. This is where you really run into trouble. Uh, Sonic Hedgehog, great for jokes, works on Twitter, not great for medicine. I was just going to say that it often strikes me as a problem in medicine that the terminology is either too incomprehensible mm. to non-medics because it's in Latin or it's eponyms. Or in mm. this case, that it's too fun. So maybe you need something that is actually quite boring in mm. the middle. Boring but plain. Well, it seems like we might be taking a sharp turn into Boringville now. Like when this work started, no one had sequenced a gene. They were just figuring out chromosomes. So it, it made sense to name genes after what the mutation looked like. Now that we have a sequenced genome, we're getting away from naming a lot of these things after mutant phenotypes and just naming them after the gene product is. Which means naming it after a protein. Like the lunatic fringe gene obviously had to change. So that's now called peptide 3 beta n acetylglucosaminotransferase. <laughs> wow. That's Elspeth Bruford of the Human Genome Organization's Nomenclature Committee. They're kind of like the adults in the room. So usually people go with whatever name scientists have picked and published in papers. But when we start getting into names like lunatic fringe uh, or manic fringe, that's another one, they will override that. And, and they've done that for a bunch of names over recent decades. So that's how we get peptide 3 beta n transferase which is just from a practical perspective, very hard to say. It's hard to remember. I've already forgotten it and I have it written down in front of me. And it's it's kind of sad that we're going this way. Like, obviously, we don't want to have names that are offensive or awkward for clinicians. But it does seem like creativity, you know, within reason, brought people a lot of joy. So is this, is the era of, of descriptive or possibly silly gene names coming to a close because we can always describe the protein instead? Well, I mean, I don't think it will ever stop in fruit fly. Um, but and, and don't get me wrong, some 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 are just so well entrenched that we just don't think it's a good idea to change them. So you've maybe heard of the gene sonic hedgehog in human. Yes. Um, so sonic hedgehog is is such an incredibly well-known gene name and it's not actually offensive some people might think it's a bit frivolous but it's not actually offensive so there's such a huge body of literature already referring to that gene as sonic hedgehog that to even think about changing it would would quite honestly just not be feasible yep so sonic hedgehog 
that's not one of the names that got changed. Like, it's not inherently offensive like some of the others, but also not great in the wrong context. Oh, and we should mention that it probably is not involved in the loss of smell that we see with COVID patients. We talked to a researcher about that. But in any case, it seems like the era of creative gene names is not completely over, which is a good thing for people like Stephanie Moore. When she named a gene, she called it something descriptive, but safe. There was a gene called Magonashi, which apparently means without grandchildren in Japanese. And Stephanie found another gene that interacted with it. So she gave it uh, another Japanese name, uh, Tsunagi, which apparently translates to connection. And that seems like a good compromise. Like if you found out that you had a mutation in your connection or relatedness gene, like you're probably not going to be offended by that name. Yeah. I mean, that's that's kind of I feel like what Thomas Morgan was doing in the very beginning by just calling it white or apricot or whatever. Maybe it needs to be like what three words because you're going to run out of white apricot fairly quickly. Mm -hmm. But if you have fairly humdrum words in random combinations say three of them then you do have uh, so many options it's like a random benign word generator yeah but then you do have to program that carefully so it is benign oh no wonder they call them just some numbers stay out of trouble all right so you've heard all about all these fruitful genes. Ella and I are now going to tell you the name of a real fruit fly gene, mm -hmm. and you will try to guess what happens when there's a mutation in that gene. Okay. Number one, Spätzl, as in <laughs> the delicious German noodle. <laughs> huh. Okay. Does it make a fruit fly look like a noodle or covered in a <laughs> cheesy substance? Very close. Oh, poor fruit flies. Do they have wiggly legs? <laughs> you were closer before. Oh, cheesy. <laughs> so it makes their larvae look irregularly shaped like a Spetzel noodle. Wow, that's just going to ruin Spetzel for people. Absolutely. Do you know what their larvae usually look like? I don't. Tell me a food they look like. <laughs> I would say like tiny, skinny grains of rice. Yeah, I'd, I'd say basmati <laughs> rice. They could totally blend in with your rice. Oh, yay. All right. Helen, next one. There is a gene called Ken and Barbie. Is it very heteronormative, but asexual? It sure is. They, they have no genitals. Well, I think it's that they remain inside the fruit fly body. No external genitals. Oh, wow. Oh, right? wow. God. Okay. This next one is one of my favorites. The Van Gogh. Oh, mm. well, I'm hoping it's something to do with art and not like severing the larvae's own ear. <laughs> you are correct. Keep going down that path. Painting. Okay. Um, are they very swirly and brightly coloured? Yellow? Like the night sky? I'll just cycle through the Van Gogh paintings that I know. <laughs> self-portraits? Yes. You're very, very... <laughs> yes, every fruit fly, it compels them to paint self-portraits. Um, no, you're very close. So mutation in this gene causes the hair on their wings to grow in a swirling pattern. Wow. Very similar to the style of his paintings. Cool. I know. it's That's kind of a nice one. Well, it sounds nice, but maybe having swirly hair inhibits flight. I wouldn't know. Okay, Helen, what do you think clown is 
uh, terrifying. It's a terrifying gene that makes people cry when that fruit fly turns up for a birthday party. <laughs> uh. Actually, Johanna did indicate as part of the answer that this was somewhat terrifying. Yes, I have a note that says horrifying. Do they live in a drain and lure you down there with balloons? <laughs> uh, do they have big squeaky feet? Do they have like an exaggerated <laughs> facial expression painted on them? It allows more fruit flies than usual to fit inside a tiny car. <laughs> the actual answer is eyes that are a mosaic of red and white. What? Why is that clown? Because clowns wear the red and white checkers. In the eye, though. Why not chessboard? I think clowns typically have red and white checkered suspenders. That is my image of a clown. You can submit that depending on what the abbreviation no, is. No, clown is okay. Although this is, I could see clown being another one that would cause problems if there were human orthologs. Yeah, true. Okay, last one. Hamlet. What does a mutation in the Hamlet gene do? Oh, um, depression. Uh, <laughs> talking to a skull. Uh, really hating your uncle. Uh, being a small ham. Um. Okay, I'm going <laughs> to cut you off. <laughs> that was very impressive. Um, okay, so it affects the development of something called 2B cells. Oh, no. Oh, that's some crossword clue type of stuff. So you either have 2B or you are not 2B. It's so good. Come on. It's art. This one is art. Before we go, we have a question from a listener. So... This word. I have received more emails about this word than any other word. Almost every time we ask you all to tell us what word you're curious about, someone mentions this one. Okay, I'll read out this email. I would love to know if there's an origin story to my favorite word. Defenestration. The action of throwing someone or something out of a window. It's oddly specific, so it makes me laugh. Thanks, Alicia. Yeah, there is a word specifically for throwing somebody out of a window. So defenestration comes from the Latin word for window, fenestra. And versions of the word defenestrate actually already existed in Middle French and German. Of course, the Germans had a word for this as far back as the mid-1500s. But it's generally believed that defenestration entered the English language for the first time after a particular historical event where people were thrown out of windows. So 1600s in Prague, there's a lot of turmoil going on. And in 1617, Roman Catholic officials closed a bunch of Protestant chapels. A lot of people were ticked off because they'd been promised religious freedom in this fancy agreement called the Letter of Majesty. So on May 23rd, 1618, a bunch of Protestants got together tracked down the officials who were responsible for closing these chapels, and also their secretary, who somehow got roped into this, and they put him on trial and found them guilty for violating the letter of majesty. And then they threw him out the window. It was a window in Prague Castle, and they fell for 18 meters, which is about 60 feet. Somehow they survived and weren't even seriously hurt. No one's totally sure how they managed to survive. I've read accounts that they landed in a pile of trash or even dung, but can't confirm those. 
and it's more likely that the wall against the side of the castle was sloped, so possible they ended up sliding. This event became known as the Defenestration of Prague, and it actually ended up kicking off the Thirty Years' War. Now, this is not the only example of defenestration in history. It seems like it was actually a pretty common form of punishment, but we can thank this particular event for giving us the English word. And it lives on in the digital world. Computer scientists use the word defenestration to refer to bad-intentioned hacking of the Windows operating system. So thank you, Alicia, and all the many, many, many other people who emailed me about this word. As always, if you have a question about a word, you can email us at podcasts at sciencefriday.com or call us up and leave us a voicemail. The number is 929-499-WORD. That's 929-499-9673. We might play it on the show. Helen Zaltzman is the host of The Illusionist, a very fun and good podcast about language. We also talked to Helen about another beloved creature, the ladybug. You will soon be able to hear that conversation on her podcast, The Illusionist. Science Diction is produced by me, Johanna Mayer. And me, Ella Fetter. Daniel Peterschmidt is our composer, and they mastered this episode. Nadia Ortelt is our chief content officer, and she says she knows our office has become infested with a horrifying human-mouse hybrid, and that she was definitely going to exterminate, but then... The mouse people got cute. So now we peacefully coexist and feed them cheese. See you soon. <laughs>